0: Today's reading is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life to the king of the ages immortal invisible the only god be honor and glory forever and ever amen this charge i entrust to you timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare for warf- warfare excuse me holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made a shipwreck of their faith among, among them are Herminius and Alexander, who I am hand, have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Did
1: you miss me? <laughs> it's a little bit too much me this morning, isn't it? I think it is. I'm already tired of me. No. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, I didn't introduce myself, actually, when I came up to pray. My name is Dave Hahn, uh, along with Jonathan Mosier. We are uh, the pastors here at uh, Disciples Church. We are so glad to see all of you, and if you're visiting with us, we are really glad to see all of you. Hope that you feel welcome and would love to be able to answer questions for you as you have them. Um, we are in First Timothy this morning, as Jim read for us. We are very glad to be able to worship alongside you and with you today, um, and it is my privilege this morning to be able to open God's God's word in First Timothy with and for you. So my wife Sheila, who is sitting right here in the front row, loves me very much. But believe it or not, there are things about me that she has to deal with. And one of those things is that I like to ask a lot of probing questions about both meaningful things and things slightly less so. And it seems that this personality trait gets harder to deal with for her when I drag strangers into it. So we were at state fair on Friday and I dragged a goat farmer into my curiosity. Really good guy. Prayed for him the whole bit. It was great. So God forbid that I learn something interesting about you or that you say or do something that captures my attention. Here's another recent example. A couple weekends ago, we had a waitress that I started making small talk with, and when she walked away, Sheila said, you know, I just read that one of the things that waiters and waitresses hate is when their customers talk to them. And that fascinated me. So when the waitress returned, I asked her about that. My wife tells me this, is that true? And she was very kind, and she said that while, by and large, she believes that to be true, it is not true of her. Sheila thinks that she said that to placate me. I think she was being honest. (laughs) Now, I wish that I could say that that is about as annoying as I get, but it would be a lie. Yes, I like to talk to strangers, and yes, I like to ponder and consider and wonder about lots of different things... But those are relatively innocent things and maybe slight annoyances, and they're not sinful. I don't care what anybody says. Those things are not sinful. What is not innocent and is of great concern are the things about me that are, in fact, sinful. And very much in need of great change. My life before Christ was riddled with sin, as you would expect. Things thought, said, and done, and things left undone. And I still struggle, if I'm honest with you, with some of those same things. Things like lustful thoughts, being overly argumentative or confrontational, raising my voice to my wife and to my son, talking when I need to shut up and listen, and being quiet when I should probably speak up. Should I keep going? Of course, Sheila has her stuff too, just like all of us, but here's why I'm saying all of this. When confronted with the things that need to be changed about ourselves or that we want to change about someone else, it is critical, but most of all biblical, to remember two things. One, God does not deal with nor identify His children according to their sin any longer. Two, we cannot change anyone, nor has God asked us to. Have you ever thought about that? That you can't change anyone and it's okay because God hasn't asked you to. We can't even change ourselves. And that last principle, by the way, does not just go for things that happen inside of marriage. It it is true of every relationship that we find ourselves in. And so while God has not asked us nor equipped us to change one another, what God has asked us to do is love one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and leave the saving and the transformation up to Him leave the saving and the transformation up to him. Though even in the command to love, pray, and encourage one another, we often fall short. Driving ourselves crazy, trying to fix one another, make the other person different, make them see things our way. And then when we're confronted with the reality of our own sins and shortcomings, most of us land, I think, in one of three places— One, we justify our sins and our failures believing them to be not so bad. It's not so bad. Two, we work tirelessly through self-effort to change ourselves, white-knuckling our behavior. And then third, having sinned and failed often enough, we enter into a world of self-condemnation and we give up on any hope Of being different. And just accept that this is the way things are. But there is a better way. God's way. To receive by faith. And live according to the new heart. And the new identity. And the new mission he has given us. In the person of his son. It is Christ in us which leads to real and lasting transformation and gives us a purpose for living. That's our only hope. Our only hope. And everyone else's only hope. And it is Paul's story of radical transformation and renewed purpose that we're looking at in today's passage. Beginning again in verse 12, as Jim read for us, Within these three verses, my friends, we see the before and the after of Paul's life. And because of how it's written, we might actually miss that. It's not quite as obvious. So let's break down these verses that we just read with a focus on who Paul was and who he became. In verse 13, Paul says that he was a blasphemer persecutor, and an insolent, arrogant man who acted ignorantly in unbelief. Just the kind of guy that you would choose to carry out the message of the gospel and write one-third of the New Testament, right? That's your guy. But God, this is one of my favorite phrases, but God did not leave him that way. He did not leave him that way. Jonathan, went over this idea last week, and you can read the full details of Paul's conversion story in Acts 9, and in Acts 22, and in Acts 26, which I would really encourage you to do, 9, 22, and 26, if you're writing stuff down. He gives all kinds of detail about where he was, but the overview of Paul's story is that he was one way, and God made him something completely different. He was one way, and God made him something completely different. Jesus, on the road to Damascus, pursued Paul, knocked him off his horse, and gave him new instructions. And Saul of Tarsus became known, therefore, as the Apostle Paul. Complete with a new heart and a new identity and a new mission to operate in. But remember, before Jesus saved him, this is who Paul was. A blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent, arrogant man who acted ignorantly in unbelief. And God saw fit to save and transform that man So let's look at verses 12 through 14 again to see specifically what God did. In verse 13, we learn that God showed Paul mercy. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? How did grace come according to this verse? In Christ Jesus, the grace of God is found nowhere else. And then what did God's grace bring? It says in verse 13, it brought the faith and love in Christ Jesus. Friends, the faith that you have in Christ and the love that you express for Christ and others is a gift of God's grace. So you and I can take no credit for it. Even the faith that you have to believe is a gift that God has given of his grace. And then finally in verse 12, it says that God gave Paul strength, judged him faithful, and appointed him to his service. So you look at all those three verses, and it is an extraordinary transformation. We are literally talking about moving from death to life, from condemnation to righteousness, from an enemy of God to a son of God of God. That is what happened in Paul's life. Paul went from having a purpose of his own, which was destroying Christians and the church as a whole, to God's purpose for him. Proclaiming in word and deed the gospel of the very one that he had been persecuting. Proclaiming the very one that he had been persecuting. Now, like many of us, I don't actually think Paul realized what the road he was on was leading him to. And that's part of the deceit of sin and of Satan. And it's what Paul meant in verse 13 by saying, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't realize what the road that he was on was leading him to. Now, the Bible certainly makes a distinction between sins committed knowingly and sins committed unknowingly or ignorantly, and both, of course, require God's forgiveness and both require our repentance, but one is rooted in unbelief and the other is rooted in pride and in arrogance. And in our unbelief, the sins that we commit in unbelief, we cannot truly understand the eternal ramifications of our sinful decisions. And that, my friends, is what Jesus meant when he cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of the seven phrases that Jesus uttered from the cross was unto his enemies who were driving nails into his hands and feet and crucifying him unjustly. The Jews and Pilate and the Roman soldiers knew they were killing an innocent man who claimed to be God. But did they really understand the cosmic consequences of what they were doing? Friends, Their ignorance and our ignorance, hear me on this, is not an excuse for any sin. But that ignorance appears to invite God's grace and mercy as expressed in Christ on the cross. And it is God's grace in the person of Christ which saves us. Who among us would actively choose actively choose to remain dead and be separated from God if we truly believed that that is what lay ahead for us? Would we actively choose that? But for most of us, our rebellion is rooted in unbelief and in ignorance. And this world and Satan, its ruler, lie to us and tell us that that is not where we're headed. This city is filled with people who think, I'm going to be just fine. We are all God's children. All paths lead to heaven. And that so long as you do more good than bad, however you define that, you'll find yourself in a better place. And just as concerning as all of that, And growing more common today is the secular so-called enlightened view that says that this life is all that there is. So live it up while you can. Create your own sense of morality and be your own God. Do you know how many more people today identify as what is called nuns? They have no faith. You see a list on a hospital and it says, what religion are you? More and more and more people are choosing and saying, either on a form or in their own mind and heart, I'm none of that. And so they create their own morality. They become their own God. But even there, if we're honest, when we think that way, we're lying to ourselves. Because if we truly believed that there was nothing more than this life and that there is no such thing as an objective or absolute truth, there would be no need for morality or equality or the justice that we so actively pursue. Because all of that would be subjective if there's no absolute or objective truth. And there would be honestly nobody holding you accountable if you messed it up. So you create your own morality, or you create your own sense of right and wrong. Well, who's holding you accountable? But God has wired all of us to know that there is objective truth. And the God who is that object is the one who holds all of us accountable. So whether you hold to religious sensibilities that tell you that you'll be just fine in the next life, or that you subscribe to the idea that this life is probably all there is, you do so ignorantly. Hear me say that in love. You do so ignorantly. Because both views are lies, not found in God's holy, perfect word, nor affirmed by God's Holy Spirit. Friends, if you are in Christ, you were, past tense, a blasphemous opponent of God. You were dead in the grave and separated from God. And if you are not in Christ, that is where you are, present tense, right now. And if you continue to live unrepentantly and reject the truth about Jesus that has been revealed to you, spiritually dead and separated from God is how you will remain. It is no joke. It is no joke. But that is why God gave us the cross. That is why God gave us the cross. It is the cross that cries out, this is how bad your sin is. This is how incapable you are of saving yourself. While at the same time declaring loudly, this is how much God loves you. This is how much God loves you. Yes, it's how bad your sin is that the Son of God needed to be slaughtered but he loves you enough to do it. Jesus' torn and bloody body upon the cross, my friends, is a physical representation of what he experienced spiritually when he bore the full weight of our sins and was forsaken by his Father so that you and I never would be. That we would never say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did that for us. The agony of the cross was both physical and it was spiritual. And God wants us to remember the horror of it and the love expressed in it. To remember our desperate state and God's gracious rescue so that we would no longer act ignorantly. But that we would believe and live for him. Looking at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. A few weeks ago, in the book of Jonah, we looked at John 3 where Jesus told Nicodemus, and this is a very famous verse, God loves the world and that he gave his only son to save sinners, not condemn them. God so loves the world that he gave his son to save sinners, not condemn them, because every sinner stands condemned already. The judgment has been made, and we were found guilty, and we needed to be saved, and we needed to be rescued. And if one does not believe that they are a sinner or that they are incapable of saving themselves, they will have no interest in nor need for a Savior. If one does not believe that they are a sinner, they'll have no need or interest in a Savior. I mean, good news of a Savior is just news until it's juxtaposed against bad news, right? What's good news unless there's bad news to put it up against? So here's the bad news. We are all sinners deserving of the punishment of death and separation from God. That's bad news, the worst news. We sin because we are sinners. We were born so. And now here's the good news. God sent His Son to save you and I from our sin and all its consequences. But in order to receive the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, you first need to accept the bad news that of sinful man, I am among the foremost. In order to receive the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, you have to absorb the bad news that says that you are among the foremost of sinners. Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 16, Paul reiterates the idea that he believes himself to be the foremost of sinners, but in verse 16 he explains why God chose to be merciful to him. And here it is, that in him Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If God was willing to extend mercy and grace to Paul, who blasphemed, violently persecuted Christians, and stood in arrogant opposition to God, how much more will he be willing to extend mercy and grace to you and me? And to all of those who have not stood in violent opposition to Jesus and his church, as Paul did. Anybody in this room chase down Christians and kill them? That's nobody. Nobody. God's mercy on and his grace towards Paul and you and me is a signpost, a billboard, if you will, to all who think that God couldn't possibly love them. Be honest with yourself. Even as a Christ follower, don't you have moments where you think God couldn't possibly love me because I've done this? Paul's life is a signpost and a billboard to you saying, oh, yes, he can. Oh, yes, he can and does. No one, no one is too far gone. But consider, just as another encouragement, those that God has chosen throughout the history of the Bible And, by the way, has used powerfully. People that, if we're honest, we wouldn't let teach Sunday school. These are the so-called heroes of the Bible. They have engaged in drunkenness, Noah. Lied about their wives to protect themselves, Abraham. Committed adultery and murdered innocent men, David. They've abandoned and betrayed the Son of God, every disciple. And they have killed and imprisoned his followers, Paul. My friends, if these are heroes, you and I are not even in the movie. We're not even in the movie. Because in spite of the sinfulness of God's people, God remained faithful. And he demonstrated his mercy and his grace and his perfect patience by loving, saving, and using those who rebelled against him. And he did so as an example to you and to me, and to all those he pursues in his love. As Charles Spurgeon said, if the ringleader, the chief of the gang, speaking of Paul, if he has been washed in the precious blood and is now in heaven, why not I? Why not you? There is no reason why, if you have gone very far in sin, you should not go equally far in usefulness to God. But my friends, Paul's life was not just an example to the unrighteous. His life was also a signpost and a billboard to the self-righteous who believe they have no need for a savior. See, Paul believed, Saul rather, believed that what he was doing was right and that God approved of it. I mean, isn't that where all of us find ourselves with every decision that we make? That we believe we're right or we're able to justify it, even if it's wrong? And whether we recognize our sin in that moment or after we have done it, understand that it is the Spirit of God who reveals that wrong and that sin to us, while at the same time convicting and convincing us of our need for our Savior. Friends, both the unrighteous and the self-righteous benefit from God's perfect love and patience. And God saved Paul to put his perfect love and patience on display and bring glory to himself. It wasn't about Paul, and it wasn't really even about you and me. It was about God getting glory for who he is and for what he does. And that glory is the kind that flows from the kind of worship that we see from Paul in verse 17. Finishing up in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul wrote to Timothy while he was in Ephesus. That's where this letter is being sent. And Ephesus was under incredible spiritual attack. There was erroneous teaching from false teachers who happened to be in power, which ultimately led to godless living. And Paul wanted to encourage Timothy in the midst of that battle, believing that God had appointed Timothy to continue what he himself had begun. Just as Paul himself had been appointed by God, so had Timothy. And so in these last three verses, we see Paul passing on to Timothy what God had given to him. The same charge to preach the gospel, the same call to engage in the battle set before him for the advancement of God's kingdom, in accordance with the same trustworthy saying that Paul lived his life by, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which we all count ourselves part. There is a metaphor that is used, I think, to describe Christianity that goes something like this. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. Have you heard that? In biblical terms, that saying could be translated, I'm just one sinner telling another sinner where to find salvation. No matter, metaphor is perfect, of course, but you get the idea, the idea that we were once dead, but now we are alive. We were once enemies, but now we are sons and daughters. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We were lost, but now we are found. And we ought to spend, my friends, the rest of our days praising, thanking, and worshiping God for it. But, my friends, there are more dead men and women among us. There are more enemies, more exiles, and more of the lost and the wayward wherever we look. And they, my friends, need what we have. If we were once beggars, they too are beggars. If we were once identified as sinners, and they now are identified as sinners, they too need to know where salvation is found. And I wonder, if I'm honest with you, if we miss the truth of that trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners in a couple of ways. That we forget who we once were what we were rescued from, and who we now are in Christ. And we rest comfortably in our own salvation at the expense of the spiritually dead among us, feeling entitled, maybe, to what we've been graciously given, having grown aloof to those who are where we once were, and hoarding for ourselves the spiritual food that God gives, rather than sharing it with those who are in need. And there is no shortage of those who are in need. Secondarily, we forget that sinners need saving, right? Christ Jesus came in in the world to what sinners? Save them. We forget that sinners need saving, not judgment, correction, harsh treatment, or condemnation. I use this often because I think it makes sense and it helps me. We are not surprised when we come across a dog and it barks. Nobody's surprised. Nobody's upset. Why then would we be surprised or upset when a non believer, someone who is dead in sin and far from God, sins? It's who they are. Dead men stink. And they don't do things that living people do. And an individual's sin or lack of morality is not that person's biggest problem. And it ought not be the basis upon which we engage with them, though we often do. Rather, and hear me on this, Their big problem is that they are spiritually dead, separated from God, and don't know, love, or follow Jesus. That, my friends, needs to be our concern, our focus, and the content of our prayers for them. That we would care enough about them to tell them the truth about Jesus, to love them as he loved us, and pray that he would save them just as he saved us. And then, let God worry about who and what needs changing because you can't save or change anyone anyway Remember, disciples church do you realize that Jesus was mocked and he was scorned by the religious elite for routinely hanging out with sinners and that he never ever asked those sinners, to change their behavior apart from first knowing and following him. He loved them as they were, knowing that transformation and life would come as they drew near to him. Jesus' message wasn't, clean yourself up and then I'll come talk to you. Mm-mm. Just as I am without one plea, And my friends, the same is true for you and I. He didn't come into our lives asking us to clean things up before he would draw near. He drew near to us and loved us while we were his enemies. Finally, friends, God's word tells us that within the church there will be wolves among the sheep. Wolves in sheep's clothing, as it were. And the church of Ephesus had at least two. Look again at verses 19 and 20. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So when I was studying this passage this week, I had two questions. What is the this that Paul is referring to? By rejecting this, what's the this? This. And, who in the world are Hymenaeus and Alexander? <laughs> so the this that Paul is referring to is faith and a good conscience, as we read about in verse 5 of First Timothy and verse 19. And Hymenaeus and Alexander were leaders in the Ephesian church who had in some way blasphemed against the name and the person of God in Christ through what they both said and did. To blaspheme is to overtly and openly slander and speak evil against God. And we are all guilty of that at times. But with these two men, their blasphemies had led to their faith and the outworking of their faith, which is what Paul means by good conscience, to be shipwrecked. They had blasphemed to such a level that their faith had been shipwrecked. May it never be said of us. Oh, it hit me hard. In all likelihood, these are at least two of the men that Paul would have called out as false teachers in the Ephesian church. And as such, Paul saw fit to give them over to Satan, which I bet sucked. I bet that sucked. Now understand that Paul handing these two men over to Satan was not for the purpose It was not for the purpose of condemnation, judgment, or excommunication, but rather for the purpose of conviction, discipline, and instruction, so that there might be repentance and restoration. Not condemnation, judgment, or excommunication, but conviction, discipline, instruction for the purpose of restoration and repentance. And the church is still called to that practice today. It is still called to that practice today in love. So Disciples Church, to the degree that we see brothers and sisters, especially leaders, teaching false doctrine or living outside of a life in keeping with the gospel, it must be addressed in love with restoration, not condemnation as the goal. By being handed over to Satan, Hymenaeus and Alexander were removed from the spiritual protection found within the community of the believers, the church, in the hope that they would realize their errors. This was the point. To realize their errors, to recognize the truth of God, to repent, and to be restored into fellowship within the church. Because if God could save Paul, And if he could save you and me he could save these two men too that is the point that's the point my friends transformation not confirmation is at the heart of the christ life and conformation being conformed to the pattern of the world came to hymenaeus and alexander through their love of the world And it's self-centered teaching. Whereas transformation, true change, comes through faith in Christ. Through receiving a new heart, the very heart of Christ himself, and living according to our new identity. Perfect, spotless, blameless, righteous, totally forgiven, utterly alive, children of God in Christ. If you are in Christ, that is what you have, and that is who you are. Do you believe it? Then, as children of God in Christ and according to his strength, not our own, because we have none, you have been appointed and sent into spiritual war. Not a war against mankind, not a war against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, who sometimes, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, are made manifest as wolves among God's sheep. There is a spiritual war going on all around us. So we need to be wise, very wise. But we need not fear. Because we know, we know our King has already won the war. He's already won the war. Our greatest enemies, sin and death, have been defeated. So we know that he's won the war, and that our enemy's defeat is certain. Paul knew all of this, and it's why he wrote this letter to Timothy, to remind him of the gospel to which he was saved and you and I are saved, and to remind him of the radical grace of God. To commission him into ministry, to prepare and encourage him to fight the good fight which lay ahead for him. And it is for these same reasons, my friends, that God has given you and I this letter. If we've been saved, we have been equipped, commissioned, and sent to. Friends, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. Do you know that Jesus' name means God is salvation? You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And now, having been saved and having been given a new heart, a new identity, and a new purpose, we need to lead other sinners to the one who has saved us. Just like Paul did with Timothy. (coughs) Trusting God to use them as he saves them. And to give to them what he has also given to us. Friends, in Christ, the condemned receive mercy through faith and love in Christ. The undeserved sinner, blasphemer, persecutor, and the insolent and the arrogant receive God's grace. The weak, are you feeling weak today? The weak receive God's strength. And the self-involved wanderers are appointed to worship and serve God for all their days. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope for this life. To be known and ever loved by God and to be changed and transformed into His likeness as we live. Those things are empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit who resides in us and will not leave us and will not forsake us. It is the same Spirit who promises by His grace to save the lost just as He saved you and I and to complete in us what He has begun until the day that he calls us home. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we praise you for your mercy and your perfect patience toward us. We deserve death, but you gave us life in your Son. May the lives of those you have saved in this place be a testimony to those who are lost, especially those who believe that you couldn't possibly love or save them. Meet them powerfully on their own Damascus road. Radically transform their lives and give them a heart that desires your glory above all else. For we belong to you, we who belong to you, would you remind us of who we once were that our hearts would give praise to you for who you now say that we are. Give a new heart and a new identity to the sinners among us and sink deep into the hearts of your own that we are no longer sinners in your sight but sons and daughters. Let us live then as children of the King as we invite others into eternal sonship in you. Let us love as we've been loved by you, forgive as we've been forgiven by you, and accept others as we have been accepted by you. Within the church, let us pursue holiness in you and seek the restoration of those who have strayed or are living outside of their identity in Christ. Help us to have the hard conversations and let them be filled with both grace and truth. Be glorified, God, in this place today and in our lives this week and always. In Christ's name, amen.